Okay, so again, I'm Jonathan S., and I'm a compulsory reader. And uh, I want to thank uh, John for asking me to come. It's an honor and privilege to participate in any way, shape, or form, in a way. Whether it's cleaning up your meeting or giving a pitch, you know, I, it's always a big deal to be asked. It's a very big honor, but at the end of the day, whatever I'm asked to do, i got to clean up commitment on Saturday morning. I got in my regular OE meeting because I got another commitment. I didn't want to overdo things. And uh, uh, so I got kind of a lightweight commitment. But I still called somebody to take my place on that commitment because I learned in the program that if I want what you have, I have to make commitments and keep them. And I'm not very good at doing that. So by, you know, following my sponsor's direction and call if I can't make it and get someone to take my place, it helps me to stay uh, absent because what I take in, and learn in these rooms allows me to take it outside a little bit. And if I don't do it in here, then I don't do it out there. And I don't do it in here perfect at all by a million miles. <laughs> I was to point out something to me this last night out of left field. And uh, I think I'll just share it briefly. You know, we uh, go out after eating Paquito Moss with the guys from another program we're in, and we, we have our, our, our uh, pretty much a sugar-free like uh, 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 yogurt. I, and I, I don't eat sugar-free stuff very much because to me it's like kind of like a morphine or something in lieu of heroin or something like that. But uh, uh, so I just found out that this one thing has fructose in it. And I was thinking, a fructose? I said, well, that's, 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 that's the sugar-free stuff you put in. It comes from fruit. What the hell? And he said, well, any kind of oats, it's fructose. And I started looking it up on the way home. I started thinking about it. And I was preparing my argument to discuss with him and prepare how wrong he is because obviously I know more, okay? <laughs> I mean, I was doing so well when I got him when he had only 20 years of abstinence. Um, but what the hell? And, and I guess the point is, is the more I found how wrong he was, the more I had compiled my facts to debate with him, the more I realized I was doing what? I'm, I'm, I'm rationalizing. And when I'm justifying and rationalizing, I'm a dead man. You know, it's, a, it's progress, not perfection, not rationalization or perfection. You know, and I, just, and I am a rationalizer and justifier and a rotten attitude, as one speaker many years ago used to say. And, and man, I get that rotten attitude in a, in, a, in a split second. In a split second, I can be angry at all of you and hate you and all that stuff. And, and with no reason at all, I mean, I just get that way. And, uh, boy, I, when I come off those food binges, I was really that way. I was a hostile, hostile, mean, nasty person. And, uh, and I was many years in another program. I came here about, I want to say, 47 years ago. Um, the first time around, I was about 18 and a half. And uh, I'd been to an AA meeting and didn't really think I belonged there. And I was going to OA for about, in and out for about four months. And I, you guys were talking Chinese to me. I couldn't get what you were saying at all. Okay? And I came from some terrible overeating. I, you know, I, I grew up in the L.A. area, pretty much this whole area around here, and Chevy Hills and Blair Hills and you know, uh, Westwood and all that. And, you know, um, my father uh, had a good business and was, his act was very together. He skipped three grades in high school and uh, graduated high school. He was 15 years old and uh, went on to uh, go into the military during World War II and a hardcore combat veteran for like four years. He didn't see as much battle action as some, but he saw some, just like a lot of vets. He didn't talk about a lot, but... Uh, and uh, he was a tough disciplinarian, a loving, kind guy, but the wrong guy to, to, to try to talk back to. I was five years old, and I talked back to him. And, you know, I'd get the back of his hand. And I remember he had me in a, um, we lived in Blair Hills at that time. There were oil fields across the street. And, uh, and uh, 
he confided me to my room for something and I crawled out the window across the street and that day I didn't realize it he was taking my mother again to the hospital and uh, so obviously he was nervous just like I would be if I was taking my wife to the hospital right and, uh, and he caught me in those oil fields I guess he must have been freaked out of his mind and he yanked me back to the, to the house took me in the bathroom and beat the living crap out of me I crapped all over my pants and uh, that's kind of when I learned it was a bad idea not to, not to, go, to go against him and, uh, and of course that was in the days when, when that sort of thing was, was a little more acceptable and uh, you know I was a bedwetter you know my mother had been a bedwetter my father had probably been a bedwetter but I don't know you know I wouldn't know from him but um I remember he, he would get so mad at me, he'd rub, rub my face in it. So, you know, and, and so I grew up with this kind of stuff, and, and I grew up with lying and cheating because I started stealing all over the town from my mother. My mother had a nervous breakdown a year before I was born, and so I grew up with a very warped image of women. Uh, my mother, uh, looking at her pictures, she was drop dead gorgeous like Elizabeth Taylor. But I misunderstood her, her, her beauty. Uh, for uh, stupidity so my image of women was that if you were pretty it meant you were stupid and she was a very nice sweet woman because that's how she was I guess men illness or not and so I interpreted that as, as weakness so if you were a nice sweet person I interpreted that as weakness and, and so I had this horrible image of women growing up and you know and, and, and you know and and in later years, maybe seven years old they started the babysitters a little bit of lightweight child molestation any kind of improper touchings Molestation, but that in nine to twelve, I started having the more hardcore stuff, and uh, you know, my parents didn't know about that, and I felt guilty because I had all this stuff going on of how it felt good on one hand, and on the other hand, I'm like, you know, like like angry about it. But you know, the guy would take me on his motorcycle around town and all that, so it was very confusing. And, and, the, and the reason I'm saying this is because food, I could I stuff myself and stuff those feelings down, and not have to deal with that. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm Jewish, and uh, so, you know, at seven years old, the babysitters were giving their cigarettes to smoke, and at nine years old, being Jewish, they passed around that Manischewitz wine at Passover, and I drank that wine, a quarter, three quarters of that bottle of wine, and, uh, and I started stinking the alcohol out of my parents' cabinets, and, you know, I used to, when we moved to, uh, we were in Palisades at that time, we moved to Corona del Mar, it's kind of like a, uh, the Beverly Hills, the Palisades, if you will, and, uh, you know, I'd walk down those, the, the stores, the liquor stores. It's like for timing. Give me five, five, five. Whoever the hell that is. Yeah, give, give me another. I don't want to get too much into what he used to like. Anyway, the bottom, the bottom line, please. Anyway, the bottom line is, is um, you know, I stand outside those liquor stores, and you know, bums would buy me the alcohol, and uh, so you know, um, I was overeating from five years old, and and I remember throwing up all of this my friend's van because I. Had some big resentment with my grandfather because with my parents and all their issues going on, I couldn't see what was going on at home. And my grandpa Jack, and my mother's father, he was always onto my BS, and he knew what a liar I was and what a thief I was. They couldn't catch me stealing, but they knew I was stealing, and uh, you know, and uh, I could take advantage of taking ten to twenty from her because she was their mental illness. So, you know, I, I was a violent kid growing up. Uh, I would get in fights with a lot of kids, and my parents would come down to the school and. You know, my mother, God rest her soul, would bail me out of trouble every single day, every, every, every once a week, you know, anyway, with the principal's office, you know, setting off fire alarms, getting in fights all the time and stuff. And, uh, you know, uh, that's how I grew up, in a nice, wealthy area. And uh, food was always there, and eating and eating and eating. And, you know, my father used to say, well, son, you're just stocky, you know, and it made it sound like it was okay. I was always like 20 or 30 pounds overweight. And... Uh, 
But, uh, you know, when I came to you guys, um, you know, at that point I was maybe 15, 20, 30 pounds overweight at that much. And, uh, but I didn't get what you were saying, and I thought I was, in that time I, I'd already flipped out my mind twice on hallucinogenic drugs, and just got into drinking and using drugs a lot, and uh, 15 to 16 and a half, I went out to another planet, I was so stoned out of my mind, on a regular basis. And, um, the 16 and a half to like almost 19, I tried various ways to straighten myself up, and uh, I remember trying to, uh, you know, uh, try different things, reading psychocybernetics, and, and I was born, as I said, I was Jewish, fully bar mitzvah at, at ironically, at the temple where I go to my meetings from another program on on Wednesday night, as bar mitzvah at the very temple, and uh, and uh, and I love Judaism. But, you know, my parents didn't give me that surfboard that they committed to get me. I just said, well, screw that. And screw the Judaism, too. So, you know, that was that. The extent of my commitment with that. Um, but, uh, and then uh, I tried, uh, you know, there were all kinds of movements on streets in the 60s in those days. And, you know, one of them was like the Nami Oringa Kyo people. You rub these beads, and if you rub your beads, you'd get what you want. I'd rub the beads, and you'd get what I want. So screw that program. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, there's the group therapy, you know, and I, and I, and I had this prejudice with, with black people going on, too, because, you know, my, my father's father, he referred to them with the N-word. That's all I grew up because he was from Missouri. And, and yet, uh, Caldwell Williams, I can mention his name, he's, he's dead now, but he was a therapist at University High School, and he helped me out as much as he could with all the dishonesty I could muster. And, uh, you know, and, and I talked to him about, about all, a lot of stuff and, and at that group therapy, but, you know, and then when I got arrested for possession, they sent me to group therapy too, and, you know, and, and, you know, I just couldn't get anything in my life. I just did everything my way, and, uh, so when I was coming to you people the first time, obviously I couldn't get anything. And uh, but but at four months of going in and out of the way, I thought maybe I'm an alcoholic. Maybe I went back again. And I was and I took the 20 questions. Six yes, you know, three yes. Supposedly you're an alcoholic. I had six yes, but I figured you know it's put out by John Hopkins University. I said, well, who the hell is John Hopkins? Anyway, <laughs> um, anyway uh, um, so I, I learned to. Uh, do things my way and get it, and I get away as much as I could and and uh, I was born and Christian overnight one time on the Sunset Strip blasted out of my mind and you know came to Jesus and uh, spent the next six to nine months trying to figure out if I was Jewish or Christian but that didn't work and anyway I finally got sober and uh, and and you know in OA I didn't like I said, there's, there's nothing you would say that got through to me. But after five years of sobriety, major fourth and fifth steps, and really being active in the program, um, I was hurting really bad, and I got up to like 195. And uh, you know, I got this sponsor, Don Bagley. I can mention his last name because uh, after, after, you know, he's he's long dead. So you know, I learned in the program. You, you, we don't mention people's last names outside the meetings. Inside meetings, out of respect for the newcomers, I, I don't mention them either, but he's dead. And, and Don Bagley was, uh, he was sober in AA maybe, I want to say, 44 years when he died. He was maybe 40 years absent. And he was in, he was in OA How. And, uh, you know, he got me on this program, and I, he, I lost like 45 pounds in like three and a half months. And back in those days, you know, that was, you know, three or four months of absence is like the Superman. And they were asking me to speak all over OA like I was something special. And, of course, I felt special, and I'd let you know how special I was and how much I knew. And, you know, and I, and I knew so much, I knew my way right back out of this program. I was gone a year 
from you people before I even knew I was gone. Because the disease is so insidious. And, you know, I just, you know, I, you know, I screw you. I wasn't going to call my food in anymore ever again. And I, and I was very active in, 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 in that AA program, and I still am today. And uh, did everything I could. But, you know, when it comes to wanting to drink, and we got really bad, I could always go back to that food. And my weight would go up a little bit more again and again. And it went from the 195 back up, you know, from the 60s all the way up to the 190s to the 200s and 210, 220, 230. And, every, you know, most of the time I didn't, you know, I didn't want to drink too much, but I always had the food going on to take care of that, that fear and resentment. And, you know, and, and, you know, I married a wonderful woman, you know, from OA. She had lost 150 pounds. But like I said, you know, when we both went back out together and... Uh, you know, I just could not listen to her because that male chauvinism and that false pride I had going on. And, you know, we, we fought like cats and dogs every day. And then after a year, we, we, we really made an honest go of it and tried to make up. And there, another kid was on the way. Cause, and that was my second kid on the way because the first one, you know, she forced me into sex. And so, of course, we had the first <laughs> She made me do it. And, uh, you know, I just... I remember... All I could do is bitch to my sponsor that first year of marriage. She doesn't do this. She doesn't do that. I mean, I had it so made. I had a beautiful woman. I could have all the sex I wanted. She had her head together. She had worked at the stock brokerage firms for 10 years on Manhattan, Manhattan. And just, you know, but I couldn't listen to her because she was a woman. You know, I had that, that ignorance going on. And uh, over the years of time... This program has taken away many of those prejudices and has healed me, but that one with women, it, it took a long time. And uh, my wife, uh, we had four kids, and when she got that cancer, and I, and I, I finally uh, was able to really uh, turn and throw in the towel and stop arguing with her. And, uh, and I found, found I, when the things came up to argue about again, I, I couldn't understand what I was arguing about it. It wasn't important anymore. And uh, God, you know, they say God will do for you what you can't do for ourselves. And he, and he took that horrible... I see steel I had against women in, inside me away from me. And it was a blessing. But that was like a 30-year sobriety. And, and she died after a five-year battle of cancer and left me with four kids, three beautiful girls, uh, uh, 11, 16, 21, and 22. But, you know, and, and the, uh, her disease uh, affected all those kids badly. And after, I guess, around, I guess, five or six years after that, because um, uh, I'm 46 years sober now, so I guess that would have been about 37 years so, uh, sober. You know, I ran into Michael B. at the OA meeting, and uh, he was going to Pequeno Mas, and we were all eating dinner there after a meeting, and I'd known him for years. Um, and I looked over at his food, and I said, man, you're really eating healthy, aren't you? And, and he, and he, he this is week after week, and I said, what are you doing? And he took me out in the parking lot, and as we were walking, and he's, he's 12 stepping me, and I didn't even know that. You know, but that's what he was doing. And he was sharing the program with me. And uh, I don't even like to look at him now because I, it's choking me up. But, it's, but you know, I was, um, I was unwilling to listen to you people for anything. But because I hated you people so much, I just wanted to blame everybody for my food problems and being 90 pounds overweight. But that night walking out parking lot with Michael, um, I would have crawled from 50 yards of broken glass to call my food and came to him. And that's what it took for me. I had to be willing to listen. And the food just beat the crap out of me because at that point, it was no longer lose some weight so I could get a little action with the ladies. It was five or six, well, four to five chest pains a day, seven days a week for about a year and a half. It was high blood pressure, super high blood pressure. It was diabetic sugar levels. 
I was dying of this disease. And I had to um, be willing to take direction. And he told me, okay, I just want you to call my, call my food in every day. And he actually didn't even say that. He said, just call, call me, give me a... He said, just do a, a fist up on your food, rigorous honesty. And uh, that's really hard for me, because I'm a rationalizer justifier. But he got me going on that, but I had one thing going on for me, thank God, on my knees. I was really willing to lose the weight. And I lost about 35 pounds in six or seven months, and I kept losing the weight. And, and calling into him, he kept adding more and more things to my program. And I did, if he said, you're going to have to do all this stuff at first, I probably would have said, you know, it's too damn much. How can you ask me? How can I call on my food? Oh, you want me to work these steps too? Oh, you want me to go to these meetings? You know, he, he said, like, within a week, he said, well, Jonathan, you've got to go to meetings. You have to have a commitment to meetings. And he said, you know, we have to respect the OA program the same way you respect the AA program. I said, ah, no wonder I wasn't getting it. You know, you can't say, oh, this is, I'm doing this over here. I remember one time after a year or something, I said, well, you know, Michael, i got 17 more years sobriety in you. And he said, the units are not transferable. And if they were transferable, you'd have a different speaker today because I sure as hell don't want to be in two programs. I mean, that one is enough, believe me. But there I was. And, you know, and for the last eight years and six months and, uh, you know, some odd days, I've been... Have had commitments for the most part at most of my OA meetings. I was going to two a week on top of my two from another program and yet another program too. Um, but uh, now I got into kind of a, a service commitment. I only say that much. I don't want to brag about anything. But it, started, it, it was something I actually called John Kay about because I thought I was going to be taking on too much because you know I do have these kids. I'm a single parent and I'm trying to find the balance if there, if there is such a thing and to work a full-time job. But you know... Um, Somehow my higher power provides the solutions to my problems. And my idea of what there's time enough for, that never worked before. I started my problems in that area today. And, you know, and so I have to learn to listen to you people. And when I listen to you people, I'm always better off. Um, so, you know, I'm not at my goal weight yet. I've been as down as low as 153, but I'm around 166 now. Um, that's close to 80 pounds underneath my top weight, about 60 pounds underneath when I got here. I've been kind of up and down a little bit because, uh, you know, I, I took back my will on a few things and I found, like, I can't eat the chips when I go eat out at, at the uh, Mexican restaurants. Every once in a while I try those. So little things like that. So I, I claim the imperfect abstinence, um, but, but basically I've been eight years and six months without, uh, eight years, six months, or eight years and seven months without... Uh, uh, white sugar desserts uh, eight years and seven months and I'm probably going to have to add the fructose to that damn thing now makes <laughs> <laughs> my life so miserable anyway uh, and you know eight years and six months seven months I haven't had to binge out of my mind I haven't had to eat pizza I haven't eaten white sugar peanut butter I could probably eat regular peanut butter but I had a little fear that it would be like you know maybe a lightweight drug compared to the real thing so I didn't want to risk that again and, you know maybe tomorrow I can have regular peanut butter without sugar but Today, I, I can. So, you know, I go to meetings regularly. I call Michael. I call him seven days a week. So every once in a while, I'll, I'll miss if I can't make the, the phone connection right because I'm too far away. But I call him when I'm in Israel or D.C. or Arizona. And, you know, I'm going away to Yosemite next week. And I'm going to call him again. You know, we have a lot of guys on the phone. And we do our little AEIOU, our 10th step every day. He, he had me go through the 12 steps again. I remember I went to my A sponsor. I said, I said, Don because uh, I had him for about 39 years. I said, Michael wants to go to the steps. I don't want to hear about it. Don't talk to me until you have a year on this program. Because he, 
you'd see me in and out of the sport of many times. And the one time I mean, they said these big trays of the brownies, right? And, and long before I came back away again, Don told me, he said, now you are not eating those brownies. Because you can see well, how compulsive I was, right? And, uh, and this meeting is big. I mean, it's huge. I mean, six to eight, back then it was like eight, more like 800 or 900 people. And I've been looking all over for Don and the whole meeting. I said, I don't see him. And so, eat these brownies. And he's coming up behind me and said, what are you doing? I was scared of the crap out of me. You know, anyway, I mean, he was, he was a pretty hardcore sponsor. And, uh, but I, as he got sick, I remember... Uh, because he got sick from cancer and, and couldn't, I couldn't talk to him all the time. I remember Michael would say, well, you got to find somebody else you can make a little connection with, not necessarily get another sponsor. And, and I made that connection with another guy, and I've been calling Tom B. for a while. My late A sponsor passed away after 39 years of sponsorship. But uh, I've had Michael all this time, and, you know, I only want to fire Michael when he gives me something that, you know, I don't want to do. And so that's only like every other day. So, um, and I find that Consistency in this program comes from consistently listening to my sponsor and not fighting with him. And he calls me on it. You know, he's, he's a lot nicer than, than Don was, but he's very honest. And I need honesty because I will justify my bad actions all across the board. And it doesn't matter whether it's, whether it's with women or whatever. And, you know, I have a nice relationship with a girl now, so that's one minute, right? I'm done, okay. So, so, so the point is, is, you know, if you got nothing out of what I said, don't worry about it. Just... Just know this. Get a sponsor and come to meetings. It'll come together. Follow their direction. That's the, that's the, that's the best route to a higher power and, and some serenity in this program. Doing it my way doesn't work. Doing it your way does. Thank you for my life. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with one of us after me. Also, please remember that the opinions I shared with you today are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember, if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Leader, please restate the... Okay, so i got to restate the questions so you guys will remind me if I forget. And uh, I guess with that, we'll open up for questions until 9.35. Uh, let's see. Well, you guys got to start five minutes early earlier today. So, yeah, because you guys have elections day. So five minutes earlier, I think, is what John told me. Um, and hopefully, is that is that enough? Anyway, so uh, so I I guess at at, at like nine thirty, you guys need to stop the meeting so we can. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. All right. So uh, questions? Yes, sir. Thank you so much for your share. Uh, can you tell us how you work the spiritual aspect of the program? Yeah, to me, okay, to me, spirituality is an action. So I can I can talk about spirituality when I'm blue in the face. When I get when I get out of the first thing I do in the morning is I get out of my bed on my knees. And I was told, you know, in Judaism we don't pray on our knees, as many of you know that often, except maybe once a year. But I was told to get my head out of my butt and I and pray in front of a toilet every day. And that's what I did for many, many, many years. And, um, and, and, and now I, I roll out of bed on my knees and I try to get to God before my head gets to me. Okay? And, and, and so my spirituality starts with that. So I do a lot of prayers. You know, I, if I don't do it the night before, I do it certainly in the morning before I call my OA sponsor. You know, I, I, I take steps one, two, and three. 
every morning I do the, the third step for prayer that's on page 63, but I also do you know the Keith Carpenter one. Another guy who died many years ago said, God, please help me accept the seemingly bad along with the seemingly good as necessary for my growth. Meaning, I don't know that all the problems I'm getting or how unfair they are at work or how much my sponsor is telling me this, how much this is causing problems. I don't know how many of all those problems I'm supposed to grow from. So my spirituality is, when my sponsor reminds me, is try to look at it as a venture, try to learn from it. My spirituality comes from trying to listen to a sponsor and listen to you people in meetings and being open-minded. Um, you know, for years, I had this terrible prejudice against gay people. And, you know, I'm okay with them now, but yet, for, for years, <laughs> let's say I was 40 years sober, so I'm a quick study, right? I associated child molestation with gay people for decades. And I just, it, it just dawned on me one day, you know, and, just, and again, God took from me that terrible uh, prejudice inside myself. And, and now I have gay friends who I hug and, you know, I, I feel close with, genuinely close with, I'm open with. It's not like a horrible thing, but for years, with, with very few exceptions, I mean, that thing would come inside me, man. So, to me, the spirituality is a willingness to grow, a willingness to listen, following direction. And, you know, sometimes there's a saying, the most spiritual you do is be where you said you were going to be when you said you were going to be there. I mean, to me, I was like rushing to get here today, but I got here early, you know, and it made me feel good, thank God. The traffic wasn't too horrible. But uh, I made it, you know. To me, that's spirituality. I, you know, doing an honest day's work for an honest day's pay. Because I stole like 10 years in this right. I'm stealing all the time. When I stop stealing time with my employer, I have a problem with that to this day. Because I'll work extra overtime over here and say, well, I don't have to work eight hours over there. But the honesty is, is can I get up a little earlier? I can, but I don't do it. But I'm trying, you know. I, I get questioned on it all the time from my sponsor and other people. But just trying to move forward in a direction like that, writing, all those things are spiritual. And when I get done with those things, maybe the most important thing that's spiritual is when I'm talking to someone newer or sicker. If I'm 12-stepping somebody, that to me, I feel the closest to a higher power that way. That's, that's all I got. I don't know if that answers at all. But, but, and thank you again, because you were always a great example to me. Still are, Carl. Thank you. Yes, sir. How do you know, being in two programs, how do you know what, who to uh, talk to when you have a problem? Uh, I don't differentiate the two when it comes to that. But over the years, I, a lot of times, certain things kind of fall out. I still talk to Michael you know, about job problems, per se. But I, I used to talk to my AA sponsor for decades for that. And so I, my, I talk to Tom B. more about that than I might with him. It's just kind of how it falls out. You know, my late AA sponsor, Fair or Unfair, I used to dump everything on him. I mean, financial problems, the whole deal. And I remember when um, Michael had me join finance class, which I was in for about five years. You know, my, I used to dump everything on one person. And I, and I was kind of unfair to that one person because, you know, even though I feel that God works through a sponsor, you know, I don't think you know, a sponsor is God. God. And it's, I think it's too much to expect that from one person. So for me, you know, I, I try to be careful about, about this, but, you know, I try not to. Uh, dismiss anything that somebody says. You know, Chuck C., a great AA speaker, used to talk about that he didn't have a sponsor, that everybody was a sponsor. And what that meant was is that he, he, if someone told him something to piss him off, he still listened to it. He listened to everything that everybody said to him. And for me, when I hear something I don't like, I don't like the person, whatever they are, whoever they are, I don't like the way they're saying it to me, they're arrogant or this, I still try to say, you know, is there, is there a small bit of truth in that, you know? And I try to listen to that because I may grow from it. Um, if I have a problem, I, you know, I, 
whatever it is, you know, my relationship problems. I mean, I can, I, for a while, so I'm going to talk to Tom. He cut, he cut me off a little bit because uh, of, of, of some other issues. But I still talk to Michael about that a lot. I talk to my Alan sponsor about that a lot. And I don't want to confuse the newcomer with all these programs. Please, if you're, if you're hearing a brand new, just stay with one program. Get a year of the program clean, and, and you know, then you, if you need to go to a different one, you, you do. But um, I think it's, confused, it's still confusing. But for me, I had to be willing... I was driven to having to reach out for extra help, and I needed that help, and I got it. I mean, my girlfriend and I went to therapy for eight months to try to get that. So, and we're doing better because of it. So you have to reach out. Yes, Miss. Uh, yeah, you think you're on CBT, but you have talked about your homophobia, your sexism, your racism. Can you tell us about your amends process for that? What your amends process? I would say my amends process for that, if there is one, and I didn't think about it until you just said it, but I, is a living amends, okay? Like, and I think that has kind of worked itself out. You know, like I see my, like, like, like with black viewers, different shapes, right? I've got a friend named Robert. Uh, see in my Wednesday meeting, he's black as black can come. But when I see him, I love him. I see him. I don't, you know, I don't see him as this different person or anything like that. But that evolved over years. Now, with with black people, that happened a lot faster. With gay people, it took a long time before I could feel really comfortable. I had some good gay friends, but it took a while before I could really naturally have that. And it, it, and it comes over time. And I think by making myself do that, you know, my my late A sponsor, he used to do something really unique that that. Uh, I could hardly stand to do. My mother had this mental illness, so I always had a deep-seated uh, opposition of prejudice against mentally sick people. I mean, really bad. And uh, But my late A sponsor, he always approached the unapproachable people. And so I try to do that too. When I see someone who's really unapproachable, I try to approach that person because he did that. And every time I do that, a little bit more of that of that breaks inside of me, a little more of that prejudice, whatever it is with the people breaks inside of me and is taken away. And to me, and then I'm dealing with those people, that's a living amends. With my mother, I had to make a living amends. It was really hard to deal with her because I could hardly listen to her because she was such a space case. And when I tried to talk to her, uh, she wasn't really all there. So it was very difficult. Um, my living amends to my mom is if I see someone with mental illness, I don't avoid them, you know. I mean, they may irritate me. We had a few guys, you know, one guy last night, he pisses off half the people in the meeting, but, and me too, but I try to make a point to shake his hand. My living amidst people like that is to try to be kind and loving and, not, and, and sincerely mean it and not to be a BSer about it. That's all I got on that. Yes, Miss. Okay. Um, what, um, how did you deal with your part in the fourth step when it came to the abuse? My part, I had to be honest about that, you know, even though, thank God, uh, one of my friend's mothers found him and I in bed at like 12 years old, okay, so we got caught. Uh, again, dealing with my part was owning up to my part because I was very young, right or wrong. I mean, when you're that young, you're not going to know what's going on. You're just 9 to 12, you're, you know, starting at 7 years old. But my part in that maybe was... It, could I have said something to my parents? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't have that relationship with them. I don't think to be that kind of honest. But uh, there were other people I reached out to, and I know I did that in high school with that therapist. Uh, Carl Williams was a great guy like that. Um, and my, I had my part that did feel good. It sucks. It feels good. Um, and I had to be honest about it. But, you know, I, I still kind of have a resentment against that one babysitter. I, 
and and and, and I have to pray for him. You know, I, that's why you know. I think I think what's more important sometimes to recognize recognize my part is very important, so I can move forward on a problem and not blame other people. When I have an argument with my girlfriend, and she's ninety nine percent wrong, and and I'm ninety nine percent right. You know, do I want that to be comfortable or right? You know, what's my part? Is there any truth in that? And, you know, Michael will always point out something to me. You know, I don't want to see it at the time. It doesn't make sense. I, he's saying two and two is nine, I'm sure. Until I get honest about it and say, well, maybe he's right. Oh, maybe two and two is seven. Okay, Michael, it's four. All right, you're right again. But I have to be willing to, to own up to that. A lot of times I have to act it up. I have to pretend, you know, that... Two and two is four. Even though you all know it's right, I got to pretend it's right, and all of a sudden I recognize, oh yeah, I guess it really is. Um, it takes a while to recognize my part, but I have to work my way through it and be honest about it. I think more important than recognizing my part is the willingness to pray. You know, the sixth step: the willingness to be willing to pray for it and to um, ask for help. And that willingness to do to, to take the contrary action, being willing to, to shake hands with people that I may dislike. To act differently than I feel. It's just really to say, talking up here. It's another thing when I'm on the firing line on the street. that it? Yes, sir. How do you work six and seven? Six and seven, I, I try to work it every single day. Uh, six to me is a willingness step. I always have to pray for the willingness to willing to make healthy food choices. And... Uh, that's tough sometimes because I want to eat this and that and over but my willingness to be willing call my sponsor text in a food change I'm not always perfect with that um, the willingness to be willing to, to pray to hold my tongue it's not easy to do I get mad at the computer at work as I'm cursing get pissed off I got to be willing to be willing to shut my big mouth I got to be willing and willing to be kind to people willing and willing to listen to somebody even though I don't like what they're saying um that's the willing and seventh step is you know, you know the seventh step prayer of my creator I'm now willing to show all of his goods and bad I pray you now remove from me every single defect of character not, and, and I got to do that with the ones I like I, you know and it's really hard to do it's really hard you know those are tough steps but one day at a time I'm moving forward slowly <laughs> what, do they, what do they call it slow variety I mean that is definitely my case in a lot of ways so anyway I guess that's about it thank you